Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you news and stories from literally the coolest place on the planet. My name is Damien Ringeisen, and this is probably the first time you hear my voice, but I, I was the editor of many of the latest podcasts that uh, we uh, shared, and this is the first time that I step a bit in the light, and I'm uh, really happy to do it today because uh, this is a really great episode that uh, we are releasing today. This is an episode from the Sense of the Arctic miniseries from the Apex Science and Diplomacy Group. I will let them present their guests, but we are going to talk today to hear about indigenous-led research and co-production of knowledge. I wanted to uh, warn you that systemic racism and inequality are going to be discussed and that can be triggering for people that have already experienced similar situation. And with this, I will just wish you a very good listening and I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. Hi everyone, welcome to the second episode of Sense of the Arctic, a special series of conversations organized by the Apex Science and Diplomacy Project Group and released as part of the Apex podcast, Polar Times. My name is Inga de Schepper and I'm a PhD candidate at University Laval doing biogeochemical modeling in the ocean and sea ice. And I'm Nicholas Parlato. I'm a PhD student at University of Alaska Fairbanks studying uh, Arctic governance and uh, geopolitics. We at Apex have created this series in order to highlight the insight, acuity, and power of indigenous peoples and knowledge systems in the area of Arctic environmental observing. Many of you listening to this podcast are young scientists working with immense data sets derived from technological assets like satellites and monitoring stations. These tools provide invaluable data for enhancing the scientific picture of the changing Arctic and laying the groundwork for scientific informed decision making. In a word, however, these tools are not enough. The deep place-based knowledge, subtlety of observations, and eco-cultural ethic of Arctic indigenous peoples, which have been excluded from scientific consideration for decades, are recently being recognized for their value in understanding the ecological and cultural dynamics of the Arctic. There is still, however, a long way to go, and it is the work of multiple generations of scientists and representatives of indigenous peoples to evolve the scientific process to one that engages with multiple knowledge systems, structural violence, and cultural history. So to launch us into today's episode, it is my pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Margaret Rudolph. Margaret is a PhD candidate at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, working at the International Arctic Research Center with the Alaska Center for Climate Assessment and Policy, uh, and the Research Networking Activities for Sustained Coordinated Observations of Arctic Change. She's also the Indigenous Liaison with the Food Sovereignty Working Group on Arctic Observing for Indigenous Food Security. Her research focuses on the methodological approach of co-production of knowledge between Indigenous and scientific communities, with a focus on the role of boundary spanners in facilitating communication across knowledge and cultural systems. Margaret was also the creator of the much-acclaimed Tech or Traditional Ecological Knowledge Talks, 
a seminar series on Indigenous engagement in Arctic research that she held from 2020 to 2021. Though currently deep in her dissertation work, Margaret has agreed to speak with us on the topic of community-based monitoring and Arctic observing, and expand on some of the concepts and programs that our first guest, Noor Johnson, introduced us to. So with that, I want to start by asking our first question. So, Margaret, thank you so much for being here. I really want to start with, you know, just some general information about um, your current research. And specifically, if you could just give us some background on the issues within science, within scientific practice that you're trying to address in your research and how you were inspired to investigate this uh, question of co-production of knowledge between indigenous and scientific communities. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. I guess I should start in saying that I'm a Nupiat. My family originally comes from King Island, Alaska. Um, my Nupiat name is Anamak. Um, so that definitely goes into my research, um, being an indigenous scientist. Uh, the driving question for my PhD is, how do we improve the processes when working with indigenous communities, specifically on climate change research? And I, with kind of that driving question, started talking to people who do research with Indigenous people and just started asking, like, what do you think should be studied in this? Like, what are the chronic problem areas and challenges? And starting to get a feel for it and starting to understand, like, the players and the context of these types of people that do work. And then when I was trying to narrow down my research topic was when the National Science Foundation's Navigating with the New Arctic, or NNA, um, came out, and they specifically call out doing co-production of knowledge. And that's a term that I had heard before very briefly in my coursework. And just conceptually, I did really connect with it because it's just co-producing with communities. And just from that very simple concept, I mean, there's a lot more. <clears throat> to co-production of knowledge than that, but that's kind of the fundamental part. Um, and then the specific um, topics that I'm researching, um, which I, again, came from with talking to key researchers and indigenous leaders is evaluation, metrics of success, and the roles of boundary spanners. Boundary spanners being those people that facilitate research between research institutes and indigenous communities. Thank you. That was really interesting. Um, your master's degree was in permafrost science. What was it that you saw or experienced during your master's that drove you towards your current research? So that's definitely a complicated answer. You know, yes, my master's is in Arctic engineering. I studied permafrost and engineering. And kind of going into wanting to do that was kind of my naive assumption of like what I pictured that to be and what I wanted, which is working with people in like big engineering problems. That's what I wanted to do. But even in like engineering research, engineering education, science is really separated from society. You get like zero training to even how to work with clients, let alone if you're going to do engineering research, doing the community engagement part. It's very much classic science research. And so it was just like studying permafrost itself or studying materials. It really didn't have the aspect of working with communities that I really strive for. And I didn't really have a mentor to explore that interest. At the same time, I didn't really have the knowledge or like understanding of the terminology to advocate. Like I wanted to do applied research. Like I wasn't really part of 
my lexicon to argue for those types of things because I haven't ever had like a research processes course. Um, and then compounded with that was the fact that both permafrost and engineering research communities really lack diversity. And so I was dealing with just being an indigenous woman in those spaces too. And again, had no mentorship on how to deal with like implicit bias encounters, navigating stereotype threat, how to advocate for myself. And so I was just kind of left on my own. And like, even though I really excelled in math and science, I ended up getting directed towards like quote unquote like soft jobs. Like I did a lot of education outreach and science communication as part of like my job. And, you know, even though I was doing research at the same time, like I got directed to doing that. And I excelled at it because it's just I'm a type A person. At the same time, I grew up code switching. So kind of really already applies to being able to communicate really well. And I, you know, I, I did have fun with it. Um, eventually, I did stall in my PhD. I was working on in permafrost engineering. And I started doing an education outreach job instead um, that brought me to rural Alaska. And really, you know, there's definitely parts I enjoyed in doing that and working with kids. They kind of really push your knowledge because they ask why or like overly simplify questions that really test your knowledge, even though they're, they should be simple to answer. But like, how do you explain things in like plain language instead of terminology kind of I think really helps with that. Not only that, like going to rural Alaska, these kids know so much about the land around them and, you know, just children. So I ended up learning a lot about like permafrost variability and climate change impacts that are happening across the state. And again, these are all just from kids. And I guess just kind of prefacing, I, I kind of did outreach differently, but I really respected their prior knowledge, and I just structured the way I did my outreach and just having interesting conversations about permafrost and climate change. And then kind of thinking what I wanted to do during that time when I was doing outreach, I did end up taking some education courses and explored maybe doing a PhD in education or communication, science communication for a bit. But really, my heart is like in science and doing research and then I was taking some Indigenous studies courses and it kind of hit me that I could just do community engagement in research and just kind of fulfill that. And it was kind of like an aha moment, like, why didn't I even think about this? You know, it's because just we don't have those meta conversations of like the different types of research in a lot of education around doing research. Um, but also in the Indigenous studies courses, and a lot of the literature at the time, a lot of them are pretty negative and only presented challenges and not any solutions. So how does someone want to do community, like community engagement research even like figure out like how to do it? And that kind of led me to wanting to study the solutions and that driving question that I have and just really wanting to understand, you know, how do we go about doing this in a good way? And I guess just kind of like bring that all together, I kind of look back my academic career and I sort of ended up researching science itself. You know, research processes is like understanding how science is done. And it also kind of helped kind of, it was a way to explore like why didn't I fit in with it? Um, you know, there's a lot of systemic issues within academia, a lot of elitism, like science is separate from society and it's just like this elite thing. Um, and that's really kind of coded into like systems of oppression. And, you know, it's really not 
a great thing when you start looking at the bigger picture and those types of mindsets. And not only that, I think within cryospheric research in general, you get a lot of that, this ultraman explorer mindset of the people that want to do it and have done it in the past. And if you don't fit into this mold of this ultra explorer man, you kind of get seen as not as smart, not as capable. And like, I feel like sometimes when I talk about this, I am a bit flippant about it. And it's just, it's frustrating for me on my side. And I've sort of accepted that I've always been treated differently in academia um, by different individuals. And it's because I'm indigenous woman that makes, it's it's different. Like you can't, like people just don't treat people universally. It's like inherent. And it's really frustrating to have it happen over and over again. And so I think, the discussions that are happening right now around like indigenous engagement, equity, ethics, co-production knowledge, things like this podcast, a lot of other platforms are talking about it right now. It's really important because it's really asking for academia to change, you know, fundamentally the research processes, but also the industry around it, funding, how people get promotion and tenure, things like that, how we teach students, how we provide mentorship, and really the mindset of what it means to be an Arctic researcher. There's conversations in the geosciences, at least at UAF, that kind of similar explore mentality, and how do we have that not be part of the education going forward? And that's, to me, it's all really exciting. And, you know, I just, for me, it's like, I don't, I don't want people to go through the same trauma I went through. Margaret, thank you so much for sharing all that. And I would also say, you know, flippant is one word, but, you know, speaking truth to power will always be perceived as flippant and, and you know, brash by those powers themselves. And, you know, having been at UAF myself for just a short bit of time, you know, there there isn't much of a kind of a, a lens that casts the gaze back upon the institution. Uh, It's very much still focused on natural science production with a sense that that is the the central value being produced by scientists, whereas everything that you're describing is that, no, there's so much more to be gained from not only engaging more properly with communities, but thinking about the outcomes of research and thinking about how we can, how all boats can rise uh, on the tide of what science has, you know, generated for Westerners so far, at least, and what indigenous knowledge can offer to Western science as well. And I really love, I really love that you're upsetting so many kind of traditions in terms of like going and working with small children, but learning from children and also, you know, turning the lens back on to the the scientists to see, you know, how they are, how their practices are very culturally inflected and, uh, in, you know, involved in various power structures and systems. And I think we just need more and more of this kind of upsetting of the norms within Arctic science. So it sounds like your praxis is very strong and it makes me want to ask, so through your research processes, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered in talking to people with these types of collaborations that you your work focuses on, collaborations between indigenous communities and uh, traditional knowledge holders and Western scientists? What are the challenges to successful co-production of knowledge and collaboration? Yeah, I think... The biggest one is misalignment of goals. And you see that 
universal in trying to do community engagement, not just with indigenous communities. But I think when you do it with indigenous communities, there's an element of cross-cultural communication, like just misunderstandings because of that um, element that it is, you know, you have two different cultures coming together. And how that's been playing out in my research, uh, my first dissertation paper is a methods paper on perspectives of success. And in there, I'm synthesizing variables of success for a project. And this is from the literature of co-production knowledge, boundary spanning, science of team science, interdisciplinary to your convergence, as well as then including indigenous methodologies, indigenous evaluation, best practices when working with indigenous people, and pulling together all those elements to kind of understand what are all the different variables of success from all these different perspectives, um, just kind of all together laying out the big picture. Uh, and these are things like, you know, are people ready to collaborate? Do they have cultural awareness? Is there a communication plan? Are both parties satisfied with the engagement as well as like standard things like were goals achieved, were papers published? Those different types of elements are all these different variables of success. And then kind of after understanding the big picture, I break it down into different types of researchers and what they'll prioritize and the different metric success they have. And I think for those who've studied research design, I'm using research paradigms and I'm using five. There's technically a lot of people just talk about four, which I use post this constructiveness, pragmatic, and transformative. Those are the classic four. And then I added indigenous because indigenous methodologies is also a valid methodology, just like the more scientific kinds. And so kind of how that plays, kind of giving an example of the kind of the different way different researchers will prioritize different variables. If you take a classically trained natural scientist, they will be trained in post-positivist research paradigm. And so they're going to be really focused on the hypothesis testing element. They're going to prioritize the outputs, the papers. And that means they're going to really focus on having quality science and following, you know, the scientific method and those types of elements, um, which will then get written to peer review. That's what they prioritize. Versus if you have a researcher such as an indigenous researcher following indigenous methodologies or inherently an indigenous community member who probably follows indigenous methodologies, not formally, but more because indigenous methodologies comes from that indigenous worldview they're gonna really center self-determination, values. There's a lot of aspects of intrapersonal. Um, so this is like stuff inside of you, like readiness to collaborate, um, that self-reflexive piece. Um, and these are aspects that go in, into a project. And so these are things that happen even before you write the proposal. And it's just interesting because when you start framing it this way with these different theories that are already out there, you really see stuff that happens play out in an almost predictable way. So you have NSFs navigating the Arctic or NNA, and they got criticism from indigenous leaders in Western Alaska because natural scientists were rushing through the proposal process, having fully completed proposals, and then going to the community asking them to sign on, and the community leaders really getting offended. And they're like, just being like, well, you know, back up. Like, we don't even know who you are. We need to know who you are before we even talk about the proposal because, you know, it's just really this conflict 
of these different priorities, you know, it, I think that's something to consider and like just trying to explain it that way to try to alleviate some of these, these conflicts that are happening. Um, Cause again, I just feel like when you frame it and look at this bigger picture, there's pattern in the madness. It's not, it's not unique by any means kind of what's happening now. And kind of not only that, when you start looking at misalignment of goals, you know, academic researchers, you know, you get promoted for peer review publications, the grants you bring in, those types of elements, research in general, by definition, is creating generalizable knowledge. And, but at the same time, like, neither, none of those things are really beneficial for the community partners. And that's something to consider if you're going to work with the community, what's going to actually benefit them intangible ways. And then again, all this is gets compounded when you're working with indigenous communities with cultural, but also technical aspects, such as the use of jargon. And this jargon can be used on both sides, kind of depending on, you know, the context, whether you're talking about policy acronyms or whether you're talking about science acronyms and jargon. Co-production itself is part of that, the the emerging jargon that perhaps is, you know, it, it is working its way into disrupting the extractivist scientific paradigm and research paradigm. But it, it's right now, it's just kind of papering over it in many cases because of the power structures that it is kind of, yeah, inherent to. Just wanted to throw that in there. Inga, do you want to you wanna keep moving on? Yeah, sure. I, I find it's also quite interesting that you say there's like that thing where people come in and it's like, oh, just sign off on a project. And it's like, no, but what what does your project bring to the community as well? And I think that's something that through my, my research of always and experiences is like, no, but what, what are you bringing to the community? And I, and I think that's really, it's, you, you said it so well. Yeah. Uh, the next question, could you tell us more about boundary spanning? Because this is a term that I definitely don't know. And how is this term used? Where and how does the role of boundary spanner fit into the Arctic research landscape? Yeah, um, so boundary spanners kind of comes from the literature of science policy interface. There's some of it in co-production of knowledge. It's really an academic term, but really what they mean is the people that facilitate research between research institutes and communities. There's no job title like boundary spanner. That's no one's job title. These people are, you know, they can be researchers, they can be community leaders, they can be liaisons, they could be community-based researchers, and on and on and on. They just kind of serve this function of facilitating research between these two realms of research institutes and communities. And I think it's kind of like the, what I'm trying to understand is how this works within the context of working with indigenous communities. A lot of the, the literature is really working with, you know, not, not like people of color communities. Some of them are, and that's growing, but like I think initially it was like working with business people or land managers, policymakers, that's kind of the term. But there's a lot of interesting things within that literature, such as having the networks and relationships is really important, having good communication skills and being able to translate between both science and whatever community you're working with. Um, within and obviously indigenous communities, there's a cross-cultural element as well as then being able to choose 
the best methods to use that's going to be relevant for the community you're working with. In, in the Arctic, there really hasn't been a lot of research on boundary spanners themselves. There's some on boundary organizations. And so these are groups, like organizations that do the boundary spanning. There's some discussions around that, um, as well as boundary objects is one paper that came up, such as like an element that facilitates discussion, such as like sea ice is a, an example where you see a lot of scientists working with community members to understand sea ice better. So sea ice is the boundary object. And this is getting, you know, again, very like nerdy technical jargon stuff. And so there's also what I thought is interesting too, there's a concept from Canada called two-eyed seeing. And this is an indigenous concept where you have understanding of both worldviews, the science and the indigenous and understanding how, like, how you blend them together. And that happens within the person. And I thought it's really kind of a way of understanding how they kind of, those two concepts interact, boundary spanning and two-eyed seeing, as well as then being able to bring together people who are boundary spanners and allowing them to self-define who they are, what they do, what kind of support they need, those different types of elements. Um, because I think these are the people that are, are leaders or they should be really leaders and acknowledge how important that role is when working with Indigenous communities. I, I found that the, the, the phrase two-eyed seeing is such a beautiful phrase. It's, it, it, it encompasses so much. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because, yeah, we think that we see with both of our eyes all the time. But the fact is, you know, it's still it's it's thinking more about the brain, the perception, the the, you know, even maybe the ideology or the mind, the worldview that that underlies even seeing with both of our eyes. So we need a lot of eyes in this world, I think. <laughs> it's interesting. The term boundary objects, well, boundary spanner clearly indicates that there's, you know, a need to overcome these differences, or at least to grapple with them in a way. But as soon as you're talking about a boundary object, that's almost emphasizing the difference in some ways. It's like, we're on two sides. At least we can talk. It's a, that song, right? Uh, <laughs> well, that's something we can talk about. Oh, I'll remember that song and I'll input it into it later. Do, do you all know what song I'm talking about? I said, it's like the Breakfast at Tiffany's. I said, what about Breakfast at Tiffany's? She said, I don't think I remember the film. But I recall, I think that I kind of liked it. And I said, well, that's one thing we've got. <laughs> At least we've got our boundary object. <laughs> okay, that was a departure. <laughs> um, I'll include that in my dissertation, like my little opening <laughs> quote. <laughs> So, Margaret, you're you've taken on the role of being one of the indigenous liaisons for the food security working food sovereignty, forgive me, food sovereignty working group, currently funded by the RNA Co-ops NSF project. I was hoping that you could tell us here we're going to get into some of the kind of nitty gritty um, aspects of these grant funded projects, but if you could tell us more about the Co-ops, the co uh, the collaborative observations project, the food sovereignty working group and also the Seon Roads process that's being led by the International Arctic Science Committee. Yeah. Um, so you kind of fumbled on the name, and that's because we're, we've gone through a name change. So originally, we were the Food Security Working Group, and that we were 
it was a group of people that gathered for Arctic Observing Summit 2020 and it was online and Zoom. And that kind of ended up facilitating us to then continue to meet after that fairly regularly and really started broadening the topic away from just talking about Arctic observing, but talking about food sovereignty in general, such as policy and those types of issues. And so hence we changed our name to the Food Sovereignty Working Group because it's more fitting. Um, It is a standalone group. It's like an informal network of indigenous leaders, researchers, allies. We're kind of working on different initiatives and we kind of come together and talk about different things and start up projects, just like any network. Um, and kind of my role, I'm partially funded by with RNA Co-ops, which is at UAF. And that acronym is short for Researching Networking Activity for Sustained Coordinated Observations for Arctic Change. It's kind of a lot. Um, but we are Arctic Co-ops is one of two pilot projects for Seon Roads, the other being Arctic Passion, which is in Europe, and while RNA Co-ops is in Alaska. And Seon Roads, another acronym, this is again, this jargon, (laughs) is Sustaining Arctic Observing Network, that's Seon, and then Roads is Roadmap for Arctic Observing and Data Systems. And basically, it's strategic planning for Arctic observing, focusing on societal needs. You know, what do we need to change for Arctic observing to really meet societal needs as as climate change is happening? And there's a with Say on Roads is an equity piece, and really, really focusing on what what would benefit Arctic Indigenous peoples. It's an international initiative. Um, again, it started Say on Roads is started by AASC and the Arctic Council together as like a joint initiative kind of pushing it forward. And one of the goals, you know, this is something that's just starting to ramp up, but where indigenous leaders have really guided it to have like the process for say on roads is really co-designing a set of shared Arctic variables is what they're called. Again, another term (laughs) shared Arctic variable sets specifically. So these are, these are going to be sets that are, you know, what should be studied and how it should be studied. And, you know, some of that questions of, you know, some of it's going to be scientific observation, some of it's going to be indigenous knowledge and how do we come together on really something purposeful that would benefit. And so some examples is like, you know, the Yukon is experiencing really big salmon crashes. So then questioning, you know, what, what do we need from observing both from indigenous knowledge and science to understand what's happening and how do we monitor it long-term so we have more informed decision-making on salmon management or maybe some other elements that, you know, gets bounced around, like maybe we should be dredging the Yukon River and all those different elements. You know, what, how can we use observing to make informed decision-making? And really what the Food Sovereignty Working Group advocates in this realm is that science genuinely does impact policy, or if it doesn't, then it kind of really should, especially with climate change research, which again, then that policy then impacts indigenous communities, because then again, it's these outsiders who are deciding how much gets hunted, what gets hunted, all those different elements. And so really you should have the best knowledge possible, both from science and from indigenous knowledge. And that's kind of the goal of the Food Sovereignty Working Group is really thinking about how we make wildlife management better to really support a genuine 
healthy ecosystems and sustainable wild foods for Arctic Indigenous peoples. You've spoken a little bit earlier, but about like some of the negative things that you've experienced that actually drove you towards your, your current research. But could you potentially share some positive cases and outcomes from co-production, either from your own experience or those uh, that you know about through other, other avenues? And what for you are the best outcomes for co-production and research? Yeah, I think this is kind of, I get asked this a lot, and it's a tough question because co-production knowledge is, is a new concept for the Arctic. Generally, I, you know, I like to reference indigenous-led science as like a replacement I think co-production knowledge, well, first, let's define co-production knowledge. There's not really like a set official definition. There's a convergence happening around co-producing every step of the research process is fundamental for co-production knowledge. I also really like the Nordstrom's et al. 2020 paper, which lists the four principles of co-production knowledge, which is interactive, that co-producing step, being pluralistic, meaning it needs to have two or more worldviews in it, so such as science as well as then local or indigenous knowledge. It needs to be context-based and goal-oriented. And again, that's going to make it relevant for the community you're working with. If it's in general abstract terms and really thinking about creating generalizable knowledge, that's not, again, that's not beneficial for that community. So I think context-based and goal-oriented is also really important if you do co-production of knowledge. And then you have just the theory and the literature on co-production knowledge and what does that mean, the best practices, and then you kind of layer on top of it when you're going to work with Indigenous communities, all those different elements around Indigenous methodologies, respecting the worldview, the ethics, the best practices, that just kind of works with, inherent with working with Indigenous people. Um, there's a great paper, um, they used... They use a Yupik word, I'm not Yupik, so that is probably not an accurate pronunciation. Um, it looks like Ilam Ya, like that's how it's written out, but I know that's not how you actually say it. And that's the spirit of the universe. And the authors behind it are um, Rachel Daniel, Carolina Behe, and Julie Raymond Yakubian that really kind of explore how to like marry those two together, co-production knowledge, along with all of those elements with working with Indigenous people. And it's really, it's a really great paper. I think it's foundational if you're thinking about Arctic research. But then if you're looking at actual projects, you know, again, that's kind of a general term what co-production knowledge is. And so you could retroactively start labeling past projects of co-production knowledge, even if they weren't like meaning to follow it. And that's where, again, I start looking at like indigenous-led science as examples. Um, and that the one example I do like to share is since of like someone, a group that actually followed co-production knowledge as a methodological approach is a Karvik Sikukun. And this is a project in Kotzebue. Basically, they went in and were like, we have these unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, or colloquially called drones. What can we use? What can we use that for to answer science questions for the communities? And they worked with, you know, the community leaders and the tribe, and they came up with um, co-developed questions around sea ice and seals that they they researched. And I think that's a great example. Um, and that in the bigger picture, that is like still doing classic research, but it's answering questions relevant to the community. And 
you know, I guess thinking what are the best outcomes for co-production knowledge? Going back to the research paradigms, there's one that's transformative research paradigm, and that is really focusing on research that has positive changes and impacts for the community you're working with. Um, you know, again, it could be answering the research questions through science. It could be how they use the outcomes for informed decision-making. It could also just be mentoring local adults and students to do their own research for the community is one element of doing kind of transformative work through co-production of knowledge. Margaret, what, what occurs to me thinking about this is just the, the various elements of institutional structure and the the way that science is funded and the kind of timelines that science is expected to produce results on as being kind of major major factors in what compels certain types of decisions by scientific teams and research teams. And so I guess I was wondering if you could elaborate on that just a little bit. And, you know, because, you know, doing community-based research myself, I know that it is a challenge to to develop and maintain those relationships, especially in the long term, but it's like, it's extremely worth it. But how do the kind of uh, imperatives of producing large scale, capital intensive research, how does that impact, you know, scientists ability or interest and ability and patience to develop those relationships? Yeah, I think you know, science and academia, the way researchers are promoted, really needs to change. I was just talking with a colleague and she was told she wasn't a good candidate for promotion because she helped the community to get grants and and then she was contracted from those grants. But the you know, the community was the PI recipient of those grants. And she was told that, you know, really she should be focusing on getting the university money instead. You know, even though she was getting paid for her job but that's kind of what you know she was told and that's like really frustrating because like if you're going to be researching the community you should be focusing on what benefits that community including you know sometimes they they should be their grant recipient i mean why why bring more money to a university for for what reason i guess like i think there's definitely projects are good candidate to come to the university and projects that really, like, really should belong to the community and you should be uplifting that community to do research. And I think it's, it's just frustrating because it is, I think in the back of the mind of all researchers is making sure that you get promotion and tenure. And it's a very stressful process because of that. And sometimes I wonder if it's, it's, it's actually probably more like this weird culture in academia and like, maybe we shouldn't just just kind of having more of that mindset of just like, whatever, like it happens, it happens. Like I'm not, I'm not going to be exploitative for the community to bring the university more money when it's not really the right thing to do. And if I don't, you know, get promotion and tenure, oh, well, and at the same time, like I would start questioning the values of the research institute that you're working with, if that's what they start doing. And I think then the bigger picture too of, if you're doing this great work, this transformative work, and they start kind of pushing those elements, like it's just kind of, I don't know, probably leave, <laughs> to be quite honest, because they're also too going to be trading on your name to get more funding, even without you, because you're doing that work. And you can always just go work being a consultant by yourself, work for a different organization, 
Um, there's a lot of other things that aren't universities that do research that you could work for that might align more with your values, all those different elements. And so I think it's, it's again, it's like this conversation that like, I think that we're having on co-production knowledge as well as indigenous engagement is really crucial because it is asking fundamentally for academia to change. Thanks so much, Margaret. This has been extremely instructive and I really hope uh, informative for all of our listeners. And we're going to directly address them. But I think already you've said so much as far as, you know, thinking about research design and protocols and and the conduct, as well as these larger kind of institutional and um, societal factors. But I guess, could you just leave us with, uh, you know, a few tips or just kind of uh, good rules, rules of the road for how uh, young researchers, especially like those who are working with Apex, if they want to do work with the community, what is the best way that they can go about doing that? And especially if they want to work with folks who are engaged in local observing and community-based monitoring. Yeah, so I think my favorite concept from research uh, indigenous methodologies is the self-reflexivity piece. It's also called positionality. And I think it, it's really crucial to really start thinking about like, why do you want to do this work? Why do you want to do co-production knowledge? Why do you want to do community-based monitoring? What is your research paradigm? What are your values and how do they plan your research? All those questions and start really being very crucial because if you're doing it for self-promotion, you're it's not going to go, you're not going to go well when working with communities because they're going to pick up on it or it's going to play out that way. And, or for like science in general, again, it's, it's just not going to work. Um, I think also spending time reading critical methodologies and literature from indigenous scholars. I think when I started first reading them as a scientist, critical methodologies itself, was just like decolonizing methodologies, it was hard to read. <laughs> Because, like, it was stuff I was trained into, stuff I did, and it was, like, having to really, really start seeing that. And it was just, you know, that it was difficult to realize, like, the harm and potential harm I could have, I, I, maybe I did. And, but at the same time, too, when you, when you get kind of past that and you get really into critical methodologies, even, like, anti-racism literature is very similar vein, it kind of makes you a better researcher in general because, like, you kind of went through all those emotions and had all those like internal critiques that you're just kind of like you receive then external critiques, which is fundamental part of like research. And you're just like, whatever, I already thought about that. I know the answer. I had to make the decision based on that. And it, you know, it makes you stronger. And then, you know, spending, I think what's fundamental when looking at kind of the bigger picture and patterns is really spending the time to learn about what the community is already doing and what's important to them and fit in with that instead of trying to force a science question onto them that you're interested in. Um, communities, you know, some communities have a lot of capacity. Some communities are doing research. Some communities have very little capacity to even get like the jobs done just to have a functioning community. Um, the government, the governance and decision-making structures are different, even, like, you know, Alaska versus international, regional, even like how the tribes and different villages in Alaska work, they're all different. And it just takes time to understand that too. Um, I think fundamentally, I think no matter what, you should be <laughs> consulting the tribe that you're going to, in the community you're going to work in. 
also through doing that, you start seeing like some communities have logistics support, such as bear guards, boat guides, those types of things to keep you safe in the community in the Arctic. Because again, these people live there. They go out there all the time. They know when it's safe and they know when it's not. Some have staff scientists that you could just partner with instead of trying to do everything from scratch. And I think in general, there's like a pressure in science to have this like really sexy science question. And again, when you still want a community push that, they might not be interested. Again, it's like, I think quite often, not like they're not interested in your, like what you're interested in, but more that they lack capacity and like their, their main focus is like governing their community. So therefore it might not be relevant to them. In general, I think when you start looking at everything indigenous leaders do, it's a lot and guaranteed scientists have way more time on their hands and they should be putting the legwork instead of asking communities to do that. One way, instead of going to the community from scratch, I like to advocate for is going to conferences that are indigenous led or just intended by a lot of indigenous people. And some of these might be policy conferences such as in Alaska, there's the Alaska Federation of Natives every year kind of attending that and seeing what they're talking about. You know, climate change has been a topic. What aspects of climate change have they been talking about? You know, who's there? You can also have like a booth there and start talking to people that are attending. Um, there's science conferences that get attended a lot by indigenous people. Um, you know, here in Alaska, we have Alaska Forum of the Environment, Alaska, Alaska Tribal Conference Environmental Management. Um, in Canada, there's Arctic Net, and I'm, I'm sure there's examples like internationally. I don't know them all. And it's just like there's no real shortcut besides relationship building. Um, unfortunately, there's no, I like you hear that quite often, like, oh, speed dating elements, or like, what if we had like some database and connect people? And like, no, because inherently the indigenous worldviews are relational, they want to know who you are. And so it just, there's no shortcut. You have to develop relationships just like you would do with other researchers. You know, go to conferences, you show up, you network. And that's that's an important piece. And I think it's fundamental if you're trying to do co-production knowledge or community-based monitoring. And you don't leave when you've gotten what you want. <laughs> yes, that's very important. <laughs> you keep the relationship going. <laughs> I have one last question, actually, because it's like you, a lot of what you are doing, I, I find you are trying to tackle systematic racism and sexism that's within institutions. And do you feel or hope that your current research may help to reduce the systematic inequalities or at least poke a hole in it that that <laughs> that starts like really asking these questions of like, no, these things need to change? Yeah, I know. Totally. I mean, I, I shared a bit, but like it is racism and sexism that really pushed me into my current direction. And it's just, it's frustrating because you go to science conferences such as the American Geophysical Union or AGU, um, and you see so many great people who are on a track for some discipline of science, and then they end up just doing DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion type research. And it's just like, I so relate to you. And it's just so frustrating because it's just like, I, I, I can see their same experience of just like wanting to do something and just genuinely just getting pushed out of the field. And it's just so frustrating. And again, just to the same thing, I'm just like not 
wanting to change the system so people don't experience that ever again. That is an element. I think, too, is just deciding to study co-production knowledge. I think if people, if researchers in the research community broadly wants to work with Indigenous people, it's something that really needs to get addressed. If, you know, the research community academia wants to generally be diverse, these are issues they kind of have to address. And it, it's hard topic. It's very critical. And at the same time, like, some of the things I end up doing, and I think some of the reasons why, like, I, I've gotten some attention from, like, Arctic researchers and some, like, say, NSF program managers and different aspects, because I'm able to code switch, and I have the ability to see both sides, you know, I have this two-eyed seeing, and the element of my experiences in science, as well as me as an Indigenous person, me as both Indigenous person, because understanding the culture at the same time, too, having those shared experiences that you get from systemic racism and sexism and being able to kind of translate some issues. Um, that's kind of one reason why I started exploring like research paradigm and framing it that way to try to try to make people understand. Because I think quite often it's, it's hard not to get emotional and you see people get emotional and you see people like being very critical and then scientists being like, I don't, I don't genuinely understand what you're talking about. <laughs> I feel like I messed up, but I don't understand why. And I'm just going to not, work with indigenous people anymore i'm not going to engage and you just see that over and over and it's just like it's like what they mean is this like if you just do this and not only that i also feel like if you if you have this different mindset i feel like you'd be happier like if you don't put too much stress on yourself on promotion and tenure you don't have to put that pressure on yourself <laughs> you get it or you don't you'll have another chance if you don't you can go to a different institute like who cares <laughs> And I think it's just kind of a, a better mindset, I guess. Thank you very much. Uh, Mike, from my point, I think I that's all the questions from my side. Nicholas, do you have any more? Margaret, I think that's just such a perfect note to end on because yes, you know, it's so it's so easy for our philosophies and our professional kind of objectives and uh, among other things to just get in the way of realizing that life is meant to be lived and that we, you know, we need to pursue strong relationships and our own, you know, our own personal goals that like, you know, not lose sight of the fact that we're all human beings here and that we we can't yeah override that thank you so much margaret thank you so much for joining and giving your opinion and your experience i think it's really really important that people especially early career scientists coming into the into the polar scientists are aware of it and and actually take it into account when they're doing the research thank you very much yeah thanks for having me So thank you a lot for listening and I uh, would like to encourage you to go to listen to our uh, first episode from the Sense of the Arctic miniseries where Inge and Nicolas interviewed uh, Noor Johnson from the NSIDC. I also would like to invite you if you want to give us a suggestion for a guest or if you want to appear yourself in our podcast to contact us to um, the email thesearepolartimes at gmail.com thesearepolartimes at gmail.com Thanks again uh, for listening and stay tuned for new episodes. Bye! <laughs> 
Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own and do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.